Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Peter Navarro, former trade advisor at the White House and author of Taking Back Trump's America. He sheds light in which ways the Trump administration could have been tougher on China, what steps America needs to take now in dealing with the China threat, and more. Let's dive in. Peter Navarro, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Honored to be here. So you have a book coming out soon called Taking Back Trump's America. And in that, you kind of mentioned the weaknesses or kind of part of what made him lose in 2020. And so how much did the China policy contribute to that? The um, failure to get as tough on communist China as we could and should have, I think, was the single biggest of the strategic failures um, that made that election close enough to steal by the Democrats. And I, I spend a, a great deal of the book talking about uh, what those failures on China policy were and, and who uh, basically was responsible for, for derailing President Trump's tough on China agenda. This is a chapter, for example, um, on Huawei, um, where we had a chance to uh, put Huawei uh, out of business. And, and that would have been appropriate because Huawei is one of the single most dangerous corporations in the world. It's seeking to dominate what's called the 5G network and it's penetrated countries around the world. And if you turn the, that 5G network over to the communist Chinese, they'll be able to both eavesdrop and gather information on you personally as well as on corporate secrets. And when the time comes, they can shut that network down if they declare war on us, which, which is not, uh, not a possibility we should discount. Um, a similar chapter on ZTE, we had them on the ropes and let them get up. Um, ZTE is, is one of the most corrupt corporations on the planet um, that collaborated significantly with the North Koreans and the Iranians on nuclear proliferation. They should not have been allowed to get up. There's, and then TikTok and some of these social media companies, which seem fairly harmless, uh, yet, uh, they collect an enormous amount of information about Americans personally that could come back to bite us. And every time we tried to get tough on China, I always ran into the same cast of uh, China appeasers. And, and the three, I think, that were most prominent, um, and if, if together they had never been allowed in the West Wing, I think President Trump would still be there, would be the top of the list was Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow. If you, I always made this, this analogy between the leaders of Great Britain during the 1930s who were the appeasers of uh, the, the Third Reich in Germany, uh, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, and Lord Halifax, his, his top aide, Mnuchin and Kudlow effectively were, are, are the Chamber, Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax of our time. And then, of course, there was Jared Kushner. Um, and the three of them would constantly uh, back channel the communist Chinese, 
whisper stuff in the boss's ear about how it would be dangerous for the stock market or the economy to get tough on China. And they were able to hold him back on some things. My biggest, my biggest failure in, in the West Wing was my failure to get the boss to sign the executive order that would have held communist China accountable for the pandemic, both financially, and that would have been costs that would have run into the trillions, as well as for the physical act of infecting Americans and killing Americans as well. Uh, we, we know now, I said then, we know for a fact now that that virus came from the Wuhan Institute of Technology, that it was likely a bioweapon genetically engineered with the help of Tony Fauci uh, and his grant funding to the communists. We, we know that now, but when I was saying it back then, um, these China appeasers within the West Wing would do everything to stop me and, and, and get the boss uh, to not pull that trigger, and that, that's one that got away. And Peter, on that last note, why did you see the seriousness of the pandemic, especially in the early days, right? Because so many people were saying, oh, it's going to end soon. What did you see? Well, interestingly enough, if you look at the trajectory of that, January of 2020 was when this thing first came on our radar in the West, West Wing. And um, years earlier, and I'm talking 2006, in the first book on China I wrote called The Coming China Wars, I actually had predicted that communist China would spawn a pandemic that would kill millions. I didn't envision that particular scenario, but I do, did know at the time that there was a high risk there just because of the nature of the regime and, and, and the structure um, of the country and the economy. And so when I got just even a whiff of that pandemic early on in the West Wing as we get, began getting some classified information coming in, whatever, uh, my antenna went up. And so I quickly mobilized um, in February to get things going, get the PPE going, get the therapeutics going and all that. But uh, because others in the West Wing uh, did not have the kind of understanding of communist China that I did. I had to fight them. I was, again, I've, it's too many times in the Trump White House I was a lone voice, whether it was the Trump trade and tariff policies or whether it was the pandemic. And um, with the pandemic, it was just stupidity on the part of these people. With the tariffs and trade policy and tough on China, it was because people like Mnuchin and Kudlow and Kushner were sucking up to the communist Chinese to promote their own financial agenda when they got out of the White House. So um, I, I, to this day, I think that it's important that we hold communist China accountable. But, but we let an important opportunity slip by there because the, the primary attack on President Trump leading into the election in 2020 was to blame him for the pandemic, wrongly in my judgment. If we had been able to shift that blame with this executive order to the communist Chinese and Fauci, 
um, I think it would have changed everything. And so it seems when Trump first won in 2016, a big part of that was his tough-on-China policy. Yes. And then you mentioned in the book how it wasn't tough enough. So can you expand on that? Because it seems, you know, this it was the toughest administration on the Chinese regime so far. So where did it fall short? Well, the, the Taking Back Trump's America book is divided into really two parts. The first is, like, I go back to the beginning in 2016. I'm one of only three Trump advisors who was with the boss all the way from the campaign to the end. And, and we, we start um, with the campaign running tough on China. President gets in there. I'm assisting him to develop policies um, with, a, with, with the help of Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, we're able to impose um, very significant and important tariffs on China to stop their economic aggression. Uh, I describe them as the, the seven deadly sins. It's the internet, it's the uh, IP theft, um, it's the state-run subsidies, uh, the currency manipulation, all that. So we were able, we got off to a really good start, but at one point when we had them basically on the canvas, down and just about out, and got them to agree to this comprehensive deal that would have given us everything we were looking for. They agreed to it. The communists agreed to it. And then they didn't, which is typical communist Chinese behavior. At that point, at that critical point, Lighthizer and I advocated full tariffs and stopped screwing around with them. But the, the Mnuchin, Kudlow, Kushner wing wanted to negotiate, and we fell prey to this so-called skinny deal, which I opposed from the beginning, which I opposed when they signed it. it. It was just a bad deal. And that's where we lost our way, because after, after the skinny deal got signed, the Mnuchin, Kudlow, Others were vested in that, and they didn't want to rock that boat. When in fact, it was, it was politically naive, for them to follow, that path, and we paid a price for it. It sounds like, in a way, right now, America sees the Chinese regime in two ways, almost one as an adversary, but secondly, also as a competitor, that you do business with. So, is there a way to balance that, or can you balance no, that? No, there isn't. Uh, and, and I think President Trump is ready in his second term to decouple. Uh, you can't, you can't, um, you can't compete and allow them into your markets when when they have zero, they not only have zero respect for the rule of law here in any agreements you might sign, they use that against us. They turn that against us in ways which we are so naive and stupid sometimes, we let them get away with it. I mean, I, if I had a dime for every time I told a, a corporate executive not to take their intellectual property to China, and then have them come crying back to me when it got stolen, I'd have a lot of dimes. And on that note, it seems right now part of the issue is many businesses look at, say, maybe the cheap labor and everything. They're like, we can't survive without China. So what would you say to them? Well, uh, we've paid a very, very dear price right now with supply-side shocks 
from exporting our supply chains around the world. Uh, Penny-wise penny and pound-foolish, I guess, would be the same. If you do what, what, let me step back for a minute and say one of the key contributions of the Taking Back Trump's America book is to explain what MAGA is, Make America Great Again is, you know, what distinguishes MAGA Republicans from Rhino Republicans. And one of the important features of what I call the Iron Triangle MAGA principles is bringing our supply chains and therefore uh, uh, our manufacturing home. And that is the key over time to increasing the real inflation-adjusted wages of workers and giving workers stability in terms of long-term employment and making the middle class prosperous. And, and that, that idea is, is alien to Wall Street and the globalists. They went and chased slave labor and pollution havens in China thinking that they'd save a few shekels. And um, it's just not working. And, and now we're exposed to shortages, blackmail by the communist Chinese. I never forget during the middle of the pandemic, and I talk about it in the Taking Back Trump's America book, Communist China basically said uh, they, they hoped we drowned in a sea of virus when we were threatening to hold them accountable for the virus. They literally were trying to intimidate us not to press them on where that virus came from. I'm thinking to myself, you got to be kidding me. Has it come to this? They can infect us with a virus and then threaten us to keep our mouth shut? I mean, that's, you know, what are we, Bulgaria or something? But, you know, that was, that's the way they work. That was Peter Navarro, former trade advisor at the White House. And after a break, we hear more from him on the economy in both the U.S. and China, what it means when it comes to doing business in China, and more in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Next, we continue our coverage with Peter Navarro, former trade advisor at the White House. He sheds light on the economy in both the U.S. and China, what it means when it comes to doing business in China and more. Let's dive in. And Peter, given how entangled, say, not just America, but international markets are with China, Going forward, how do you balance that? How do you deal with that? Because it seems in the short term, if we bring manufacturing back, we're going to feel some pain. But how, what would you tell businesses who are only looking at the short term? Well, I think that argument might have might have worked um, prior to this stagflation that we're suffering in this country, which is simultaneous recession and inflation. But what we now know is that a lot of this pain and stagflationary impulse is coming precisely because our production is in China. I mean, when, when China locks down with its zero COVID lockdown policies, it's, it's strangling its own supply chains. They're going to export their inflation here. They're going to export their supply chain uh, fragilities 
here, and it makes no sense for us any longer, um, just from a purely strategic and ge geopolitical point of view, to be over there, much less economics. And coming up, Xi Jinping is seeking his unprecedented third term. So if he gets that, how do you see that changing our relationship, given that Xi Jinping really has that vision of the West, and especially America, declining? Going back many, many years uh, in my previous books, I argued that communist China needs to change its economic model if it's going to survive long term. I mean, there's only so much intellectual property you can steal. There's only so much mercantilism you can engage in. And as you look at communist China, I'm not of the opinion that it's going to collapse tomorrow, but there's certainly a lot of rot um, in that economy and absent kind of constructive changes there, um, there's no way that Xi Jinping is going to be a popular dictator uh, over the coming years. Uh, and that means he'll have to increasingly lock down uh, all manner of civil rights and public opinion in communist China. So I don't, I'm not bullish on communist China. The only question I have is whether they'll take us down with them. Uh, by provoking a kind of wag-the-door dog war. On the note of China's economy, it does seem we're seeing a lot of alarming signs, whether the real estate crisis happening there, the continued COVID-19 lockdowns, and this potential war. They're actually boosting their spending in terms of dealing with social deals instead of their actual defense spending. So given all these factors, how is that impacting America, or is it? One of the big concerns is Communist China's uh, initiative to make the renminbi, the yuan, call it whatever you want, the, uh, the reserve currency of the world. And to the extent they force, cajole, uh, or induce others in their axis of, of uh, mercantilist evil into adopting uh, the Chinese currency, um, that's going to hurt uh, America. But I mean, in my judgment, like so be it. I, I don't, I just don't see these two systems interconnected and being able to coexist. It's just something's got to give there. And, and um, you know, I spent four years in the Trump White House fighting communist China, and I can't think of a single instance where they kept their word. They're just liars and cheaters, and uh, they want to destroy this country. And on that note, it seems when the world, especially America, let Beijing join the World Trade Organization, it was on this idea that we would make them more liberal, more democratic. But it seems instead they made the free markets less free. So what can we do now to fix that? Well, that was one of the great... Uh, naive and political miscalculations of, of history. Um, interestingly, that was the theme of my Death by China movie and book uh, back in 2011. Um, this, this whole concept uh, we talked about off air about unrestricted warfare, 
uh, one of the key features of that is using your opponent's uh, institutions uh, for your own advantage. And clearly that's what uh, the communists have done with the World Trade Organization and with the World Health Organization, in fact, which they also control. So um, I think that if you look at what needs to be done, it's just taking back Trump's America, get Trump back in office, pursue the kind of policies he advocates and I was helping him promote, um, and we'll be okay. But until that happens, um, Communist China is going to keep seeking to um, take our wealth and subjugate us. And Peter, on that note, so if Trump gets back in office in 2024, what should his China policy look like? Decoupling uh, the two economies. Um, that will help bring our manufacturing and supply chains home, uh, even as we cut off the source of funding for the defense budget. It's, it's kind of, I always found it, um, uh, I was shocked when I first looked at the numbers uh, that this, the size of our trade deficit is roughly equal to their defense budget. Effectively, when we go into Walmart and buy Made in China, we're helping them build their missiles to destroy Taiwan or sink in a U.S. aircraft carrier in the Taiwan Straits. So we certainly have to do that. Um, I think I'd love to cut off um, the flow of American capital, particularly for our pension funds to Communist China. That was my whole initiative to shut down the Hong Kong clearinghouses, which would have done the trick, but that one got away. Uh, I think um, uh, certainly taking countermeasures on the whole Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, we're just, uh, the problem we have as a government is that people change in the bureaucracy every four years with administrations. The, the people I sat across from the table uh, to negotiate the trade deal are the same people Biden's negotiating with now, and they're the same people who were negotiating all the way back to Clinton. So, um, and because of that, we don't have the necessary institutional memory to do what we need to do, but that, that's part of, you know, when I write a book like Taking Back Trump's America, that's part of the institutional history. I'm hoping that this book will be an important historical document as well as an agent of change. And given that, what can the concerned citizen do going forward to maybe try and help? The, uh, the last part of Taking Back Trump's America focuses on the imperative not just to take back the Trump White House in 2024, but first to take back the House of Representatives from Nancy Pelosi and her Democrat partisans who have weaponized unconstitutionally um, the House's investigatory powers. There's a, there's a great little chapter in the Taking Back Trump's America book about how in 2018, um, in the West Wing, the mistake was made to focus too much on the Senate because of, of cajoling by Senate Majority Leader at the time, Mitch McConnell, and not enough on the House. If we had focused on the House and not turned the gavel over to Pelosi, 
uh, I think Trump would still be in the White House. There were just a number of strategic failures, any one of which I think would have been enough to prevent this election from being stolen by the Democrats. But when you, when you line all of them up, it's like, wow, this, this could have been the, the biggest landslide in presidential history. And should have been. Peter Navarro, thank you so much for joining us. Take care. That was Peter Navarro, former trade advisor at the White House. And for insights into Navarro's thoughts on former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as potential future challengers of Trump, check out his new book, Taking Back Trump's America. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. See you soon.